Joey boy, don't be tense and chase with me here. I was bricked. The referee was absolutely shocking. Subscribe now to the OTB Rugby Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts or get the entire OTB catalogue on the OTB Sports app. And welcome. Uh, like everybody else, I suppose during COVID, I've, I've had a lot more extra time in my hands than I normally would. So I wanted to try and use it as productively as I possibly could. Uh, so to that end, I, I decided to record a short series of podcasts focusing on the whole area of coaching, um, not just in the GAA, but I'll have, I'll have guests from a wide range of different sports talking about coaching in their own context. Um, and it's not to portray myself as an expert or a guru. Or I'm, I'm certainly not that. Uh, I'm a learner like everybody else. But I've always found great value in reaching out to other coaches and in other sports and try to pick their brains and and see if I could get a nugget or two that would help me in my own coaching. Um, It's also probably just about 10 years now since one of my boys was in Temple Street Children's Hospital for a few weeks. Uh, So I wanted to try and find a way if I could to help them out a small little bit with fundraising. Uh, Like like everybody else, um, COVID has has put a stretch on all of us. So there is no charge and, and I'm not being paid by anybody for doing these. But my two main objectives are just to provide a little bit of thoughtful debate for coaches and and hopefully if people find some value in it that maybe they'd see their way to donating a euro or two through the link below that'll all go to uh, Temple Street Children's Hospital. Uh, okay, so let's move on to today's today's guest is a, is a man that I know really well, um, back from his days in 2002-2003 with the Tralee Tigers. Uh, Russ Bradbird was was a basketball coach at, at University of Texas El Paso and New Mexico State where, where he worked with legendary coaches like Don Haskins and Lou Henson. Uh, Don Haskins, who he speaks about you know, really nicely here, uh, was, was the guy that people would probably be most familiar with uh, from the movie Glory Road where he was the white coach who moved to Texas El Paso and, and won a national championship for the first time ever with five black players starting on, on, the, uh, on the team. Um, so Russ talks about him and he talks about his own experiences going from Tralee to, to, uh, to now being a writing teacher himself and playing the fiddle and different things. So I hope you enjoy it. There should be a bit of value in it for coaches. Um, and let me know what you think. Just Russ, so, so I, we were talking about it beforehand. Just we're, we're trying to maybe drill down a little bit into into the whole coaching philosophy of, of different sports and different coaches. And you're somebody obviously with a with a with a fantastic background in coaching. Uh, you might just kind of take us through a little bit at the uh, at the start of, of where you came from, with your your high school and and onto North Park and 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 just you know where you went from there. Yeah, well, I was a, as you as you might remember, I was a terrible player. I, n- I never was never able to make my high school team. And I had this crazy idea. Well, I'll, I'll try and make a college team, which was a really, uh, uh, which the odds were stacked against me, but I was lucky enough to make it through practicing my dribbling skills. I was a little bit, I'm still a little bit OCD, you know, a little, a little uh, compulsive and obsessive. And so I practiced my dribbling skills like a, like a maniac and was able to be sort of a walk on a, a, the sort of the last player on the bench at North park college and uh, but which is a division three school, but we were division three national champions. We were very good division three. We beat, we beat the division one teams that we played. I never got in. I scored 13 points in my career, but I was able, I was able to sit next to the coaches every game. I made a point, you know, some players sit next to the coach hoping they're going to get in the game. I knew I wasn't going to get in the game until the very end. If we, if, because we won a lot of games by a lot of points, but 
I sit, just sat next to the coaches and listened to them talk. And, and I got the idea pretty early on that maybe I could be a coach, partly because I love the game, but also because, but also because I, uh, I just didn't want to get a real job. And, I, and honestly, Michal, I'm not being falsely modest when I say I was a terrible player. I was good at the dribbling drills and I could demonstrate them and wound up making a name for myself. But I was so bad that I got cut from the team as a, as a senior in college. And, uh, and, and in fact, made a foolish mistake. The coach, the day he cut me from the team, no one gets cut as a senior. You have to be terrible to be cut as a senior. But the, the day he cut me, he called me into his office and offered me a couple coaching shirts and said, we want you to help coach the team. But I was stubborn and heartbroken and, and wound up, uh, it wound, wound up taking me a couple of years to get in, you know, to begin my coaching career after that. Right. And and you, you cut as a senior because the, the quality of player got better or, or you had this? Yeah, there, there's, you know, in, in America, you have to, there's the, you get the four years to play. Mm. And so when they're graduating seniors leave, then they bring in, might bring in some new players. But on the, when, when, I, when, when my third year, we won the national championship and we had no seniors, nobody graduated. Right. Right. So they were able to bring in some pretty good freshmen and I pretty quickly became obsolete. And they had they had they had hinted to me that this is this might happen and you should think about being a coach and that kind of thing. But I was very determined. You know, I just I can be, be as you know as you well know I can become very sort of narrow minded in my focus and I just couldn't I couldn't see past my own pathetic playing career career at that time. Okay, and and you mentioned the, the dribbling there and how how it's probably become your staple. Where where did that where did that come from or, or that? That desire to improve that aspect of your game, or, or, or where did that where did that arrive from? Well, it was it was more mostly out of necessity because I didn't have many options. You know, I wasn't going to become a good dunker at my size or a good rebounder, and I wasn't I wasn't a terrible shooter, but I wasn't a very good shooter. And I was you know I was small. I was five foot eleven, which is which is small for you know which is tiny for basketball, and I you know and so it was really it was a, a thing that uh, just sort of a necessity thing and. Uh, I'd heard, you know, I'd been shown these dribbling drills and it was a lot of coaches sort of did them as a little five minute warm up, but I became obsessed with them. And now I know there's a limit to what you can do with it, that you can become great at all these drills, but if you can't do it in a game, well, for me, I, I wasn't going to do it in a game because I, uh, because I didn't have great speed or quickness, but I developed great hand speed from doing them over and over. And one, one day after I was, I think I was done playing by this time, but a, a coach saw me do it and asked me to come and speak to his, he asked me to come and speak to his camp about dribbling. And he'd only just seen me do a little bit. And I sort of, I had done it privately. I'd done the drills privately. And in fact, would practice with the lights out and blindfolded uh, right. sometimes in the basement of the dormitories where we were living. And so I was quite good. I could dribble three basketballs, if you can imagine, and th those kinds of things. And, but we'd practice blindfolded and, uh, and, or, and I'd wear a cotton gloves. We'd call them work gloves. I don't know what the Irish would call it. Just what you use in the garden. I wouldn't Maybe be used, a, a I would used to those. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, sure. If you're cutting the turf, what would you wear, though? Uh, raw hands, raw hands. You wouldn't wear gloves. See, that's the difference. Well, the Irish are tougher than we yeah, are. Yeah, as we well know. But but uh, and so I had this, and I had this whole routine of things that I'd practiced by myself, but had never done them publicly. But I made a small name for myself going around to the summer camps and and demonstrating demonstrating these drills. You know, in retrospect, I didn't know it at the time, Michal, but in retrospect, I think one of the things that appealed to me about basketball is that you can practice alone. 
And, and, you know, I would imagine, I don't know enough about Gaelic football to know, could you practice Gaelic football alone? Yeah, you can. Absolutely. It's a little easier with basketball because you're you're yeah. shooting at a hoop and the ball's going to come back to you. You kick it over the bar from 30 yards in football, you got to go chase the ball and bring it back out again. So it's, it's a little bit more difficult. <laughs> There it is. So, 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 uh, it was, you know, like baseball would be hard to practice on your own and those yeah. kinds of, I suppose in the individual sports would be okay. Golf, but I like the aloneness of it. The, the idea of that I could go by myself with my basketball mm. and, and, and practice. And I think that's, I enjoyed that part as much as the actual game itself, which of course looking, you know, moving, no, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but becoming a writer, is there's very much an aloneness to it. You know, you're not mm. writing with nine other people, like you're playing basketball with nine other people. Yeah. But, but that, but that the dribbling drills got, got people's attention and it led directly to being hired by Don Haskins, the famous old coach at the university of Texas, El Paso. And he was a great defensive coach and very old school. He was very gruff and he smoked cigarettes and drank tequila, but he was, uh, but he, what he was most famous for was he was the first coach to start five black players. Yeah. This is, you know, when I was seven years old, but he started five black players and won the national championship. And so because of him, I also got very interested in uh, not just the stories behind the game of basketball, but also in how sports can often be used for, you know, to, you know, it, it, how, how socially relevant sports can become, mm. uh, which, which I suppose we can, we can talk about it because I think it happens in Gaelic football as well. For sure, yeah. That, Dan Haskins is a, is an interesting one. That that was the movie Glory Road, wasn't it? That's the the, the popular movie that most people yes, would have seen. Glory Road was the movie based on it. There's, they take a lot of liberties. The Glory Road, the movie. I, I think it's a fantastic movie. It's not true in many ways, <laughs> but the idea the idea was true that he did take. He had the five. It was actually his fifth season that he won the championship, and okay. and there was already black players. There was already two black players on the team when he arrived. One of them was the famous old co the famous coach Nolan Richardson. Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, it's, a, it's a good movie that people would have would have probably seen or heard of. But uh, and and how long were you there, Russ? How, how long were you were you working with with Haskins? I, I, was, I was there eight seasons, and then went back to Chicago, and that's when I first learned to type and became a learn how to use a computer i did a scouting service uh like a, i don't know if, if they would have it in gaelic football but sort of a a recruiting report that the colleges subscribed to i'd go around okay. to the high school games and but i i learned i learned to you know to type and not to use one finger but also i started becoming sort of more interested in in the right i think it's my door into writing and maybe it'll happen for you too. Maybe there's a novel in you, Mihal. But, but, but I, I realized, that, you know, as I was writing these scouting reports, I realized, geez, I just said this about that player that he was quick as a cat. I've got to come up with a different metaphor here. And, 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 but, but that scouting service led to me coming to, you know, led to uh, uh, the job at New Mexico State, which is just a half hour north of UTEP, and they're they're big rivals. And so, if you can imagine. Well, it's like what our what, what what your friend Pat Price did when he went from Neptune or went from demons in Cork to Neptune. Yeah. Or even on to you know that, that sometimes you join the rivals and it, it really rattles everybody and it did made. But anyway, and then I wound up at New Mexico State for six seasons. Yeah, uh, and I was with Lou Henson in uh, in New Mexico State. Yeah. Yes, and 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 they were Haskins was old fashioned and stubborn, and Lou Henson was old fashioned and stubborn, and but they were very different in many ways. You know, Haskins was sort of the power of negative thinking that if you if you thought the worst and predicted the worst, that uh, everything will t turn out better than you know that you'll never be disappointed. Yeah. And uh, and and he has also had an interesting idea, Haskins that. 
in the locker room after the games, if, if, if we won, Don, Don Haskins would just rip into everybody if we won. And if we lost, he would build them back up and say, I was really proud of the way you fought. And we hustled really hard. I thought we, we played really smart at times and you know, those kinds of things. The problem was that because we were winning so much in my time, at Utah, we had very good team. We, we had very good teams at both places, but we were winning so much that all Haskins seemed to do was complain. Yeah. You know, yeah. that, that, that I, I, you know, I, I remember we would leave the locker room uh, afterwards and I would think, does he not know that we won that game? But then when we'd lose, he was much, he was much kinder. And the other interesting thing that Don Haskins did that I thought was that I think uh, that I tried to use as a coach uh, and, and I think would sort of be translatable to any sport is that, is that he was, he was brutally hard on the, players but it was always and he wasn't a cursor it wasn't f-bombs and, and that kind of thing but he was brutally hard he was and uh and was never satisfied with their effort but it was always uh his dissatisfaction was always pointed at a group he would he would never say kieran you know you're playing like a damn baby he would say the whole bunch of you are playing or all you guys in orange shirts and so it was pretty simple psychology, Michal. Yeah. You could just see the players get together then, and they would say, you know, this guy doesn't think we can play defense. Let's show him, mm -hmm. you know, which is, yeah. of course, precisely what he wanted them to do. But I've seen it before over the years with other coaches where they would belittle one guy, and there's great damage that can be done that way. Occasionally mm -hmm. a guy might need it if he's being completely lazy or completely selfish. But with Haskins, I think it was, it was a very uh, – calculated move that he was hard on the whole group and the whole group didn't like him. Yeah. So there was no, there was no, there was no favorites. They all disliked him and they were all, they were all would complain about him, but it was never, but they would ba banded them together. Yeah, it's fascinating, and and yet the team was obviously very successful. Most of those teams were were very successful. It's it's interesting there. You said about him, you know, preparing for the worst or fearing for the worst. We had a, we had a goalkeeper with Kerry. Uh, I'd leave his name. I'll, I'll leave his name out of it for now. But it, it, when when we used to be training really hard in the winter, and then it was tough, tough stuff. It was always a case of you know he was coming in there absolutely preparing for the worst possible session that we could possibly have, and his view was listen if it's if it's better than that then sure we're winning so that that kind of mindset is very prevalent around the place still that prepare for the worst and 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 hopefully you won't be disappointed after that. Well, and then, then, but then working for Lou Henson at New Mexico State, he was, they were almost exactly the same age and they were both from Oklahoma, which, you know, they both came from very modest, you know, they were depression era kids. Uh, but Lou Henson was completely optimistic that even after, even after, you know, he would come in and after a tough loss, you know, he would smile when he greeted you. And I remember when I first met him, I thought, we'll see what he's really like after we lose. And after we lost our first tough game when he was coaching, he came in and with a big smile and said, Hey, we can work. We can do a lot better than we did tonight. How many of you guys think we can do better? And they all raised their hands. And I think they were a little embarrassed and I think sort of stunned that there wasn't going to be a, a tongue lashing and, and that kind of thing. And so Lou was very, very optimistic. He didn't like to talk about the past and he was much more upbeat, upbeat and he was much more interested in giving the players their confidence. Oh, the, the other interesting difference is, Don Haskins thought that the players couldn't remember anything new uh, during what we'd call sort of crunch time with a minute or two to go. He would just say, go out there and, you know, play hard and share the ball. Whereas Lou Henson would draw up a, a fancy play that we had never seen before. 
And I remember saying, whispering to him, like, Lou, I don't think they can remember this. But sure enough, they went. So Haskins had had little confidence in the player's ability to remember anything complicated. He always kept things simple, whereas Lou Henson was was uh, was very intricate and was always drawing up new plays. And and yet both were successful. And so I do think you know what an important thing I learned I think is that there's more than one way you know, more than we'd say more than one way to skin a cat, you know, there's more than one way to be successful. The danger, of course, is that you, I've, I've heard it called being a cesspool of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so Lou would be, I don't know if you remember Danny Fulton, that was the yeah. Belfast coach yeah. over there. I also, you know, I thought he had great dignity. He was a real gentleman and classy. Yeah. He's just a classy guy. And after the game, he was, he, the game was over and he'd shake your hand. And, and Lou Henson was very much like that. Once the game was over, there was no more bad feeling. There was no, he wasn't, wouldn't, but also Lou could be very shrewd. Now you'll, you'll like this one. And I tried to get your man, Kieran Donahue to do this. I don't know if he ever did it, but when the game was almost over and we were about to lose, Lou would whisper to the referee, maybe there's a minute to go or two minutes. Maybe a fellow was shooting free throws and there was a minute to go or two minutes, but we were down 10 or 20 points. There's no way we're going to win. Lou would go up behind the referee and say, Joe, you guys did a great job tonight. You treated us fairly. There was, you know, we got, we've got no complaints. We lost fair and square. And the first time I heard him do that, when we were walking to the locker room, I said, Lou, now, why did you do that? The referees were terrible. Look, they shot twice as many free throws as we did. And he said, now, Russ, I'm trying to get ready for the next game, and I want the referees on our side. So I tried to get Kieran Donahue to do that, to go up, (laughs) who could be, of course, could be very volatile, as everyone in Ireland knows it. I wanted him to go up to the referees with a minute to go when they were sure to lose and say, uh, I I guess in, in Gaelic, there's just one or two referees, is there? Just one. Well, just one. Yeah. Well, the poor fella, he's got no wonder Donna he's yelling at him, but it's not his fault. But, but, you know, even in basketball, there's three referees and only 10 players, which is actually one too many. But uh, so I wanted Donna to go up to the referee and whisper and say, we lost fair and square. And, you know, we've, we've got no complaints. You, you called a good game because I do think that one thing you don't want, if you're the referee or the player is the referee angry and looking out for every little thing that you do. Yeah. So, you know, so I think, I think that happens when, you know, I watched the one game, I actually happened to be there live by chance when, uh, remember the time when Kieran Don, he got thumbed in the eye by the fellow from Dublin? Allegedly, I do, yeah. <laughs> well, I watched it, I've watched it several times and, and uh, it's nice of you to say allegedly, but, but <laughs> I, I thought Don, he handled it with great class and said, look, it's just part of the game. But I've always wondered, you know, if Donnie hadn't been so hard on the refs, if, if he would have got maybe more calls. I, I do think it, I do think it's true. It's true with our wives as well, Michal. We're going to get more, we're going to, we're going to attract more flies with honey than we yeah. That's that's for sure. Can, can I just go back to it's just something you were talking about Haskins there for a second about about that he didn't trust that the players would remember stuff in in crunch time or whatever and and that his approach was maybe one of of simplicity more than you know maybe Henson's one more complicated. There's there's now nowadays you'd probably be talking about you know that that approach is is giving players a sense of ownership over over the situation themselves to maybe they don't have to stick to a rigid play to to go and and, and win a game but that they actually have control themselves to say okay let let's let's pick the best option here and whatever presents itself presents itself and we and we go win a game so there, there's now there's people would see that as as a bit of maybe brilliance in 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 the simplicity as well you know. Well, I, I think I think that's always the struggle with with coaches. I know it's always a struggle with me, 
is, is how much how much control do you insist on mm. and are you insisting on control just to have control or is there a real reason for it and and when to you know when to when to give up control you know one of the things that it, it happened to me when i was with the coaching the truly tigers is i think the first year i was trying to control things a little bit too much and of course it was a disastrous season for a number of reasons but one of them was my own ignorance and sort of and one of the things that really helped me and i talk about it this in, in the in the in the book in patty on the hardwood was sort of starting to believe that particularly you three guys john tian but at that point was in his 30s and and you in your early 20s and kieran donahy that you understood in many ways better than i did and so one of the things that really helped me was you know in learning the irish fiddle there, I was a be, you know beginner on the Irish fiddle, and it made me sort of understand, hey, we're all still learning here, and and uh, it made me sort of open up to think. And so in my second year, there was a lot of I don't know you you might remember this is there was a lot of you know that I would call guys over and whisper you know, I'd whisper to you or particularly to you or Kieran or John T and like should we stay in the zone or should we go man to man and what should what should we do here. And even I think there was there was a lot more give and take. You might not remember this, but I remember this very distinctly at, at Cholester. I was sort of on you about whatever it was, rebounding or whatever. And you turned to me in the midst of the game and said, Coach, that's enough. And I thought, <laughs> well, well, first you were you were twice my size, probably. But, but I you know, I think I, I think as a if I was younger, I would have said, I would have said, oh, you know, uh, you know, Joe, get in there for me, a hall quirk. I don't like his big mouth, but there, there's, <laughs> there's, an there's an element of give and take, at, yeah. especially, and, and there's an element of give and take, particularly in basketball. I imagine it's in, in, in Gaelic football and a lot of other sports as well, but there's, there's an element of give and take, and, 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 and the challenge for me often was, you know, when to suppress my own ego, but all, and also I think in some ways, when to be stubborn, and stick with stick to your guns and when to bend. So, for example, I, I remember when I worked for Don Haskins, he said, "I'll never coach a goddamn guy who's got a tattoo." Well, <laughs> you would you wouldn't have a team now. Yeah. And, and and at one time, you know, Don Haskins was famous for he would never play zone defense. But when but by the time I got to him, we played zone defense. You know, much more than you know, maybe thirty percent of the time we would go to the zone and it would frustrate people and so I, I think that you know we'll uh i think we all have to sort of figure out when to be when to be patient and when to be stubborn and i think it even happens on an individual level is I, i'm going to be incredibly impatient with you know with kieran donahy in some ways but in other ways i've got to I've got, I, I, and I, because i think if you're not impatient no one ever gets better if you're if all you ever do is say, well, he'll get better someday, it's never going to happen, you know. But if you but if you're too impatient, that can spoil things as well. Going going back to your own playing when you you had you admit yourself that you weren't the, the, the greatest player and you got cut as a senior, which was obviously probably a formative thing for you, you know, that that's a huge maybe embarrassing or, or whatever you'd feel those emotions yourself but do, do you think that those kind of things shaped or, or or influenced your coaching as you went forward that that feeling of maybe that you weren't the best player that you had a little bit more empathy for guys that that maybe weren't the star guys or, or that that were struggling a little bit more well I, I think it works i think it did it in a very profound way and it, for two different reasons first i think it made me more sensitive you know you, you might remember when i was coaching with Tralee you know, I, I actually coached super Dave Cronin and Kevin O'Donohue and, and, 
Aiden O'Shea and, and guys who hadn't, and Alan Keene, guys who hadn't up to that point hadn't played much in the Super League. I was going to throw them out there because I was maybe a little too sensitive. I didn't want a guy to feel like I'm here on the bench and I not only do I not get my chance, I'm not even appreciated. I wanted to, because I wanted to appreciate the eighth, mm. ninth, and tenth man. But also, I think there's a there's a long. I'm not the first one to say this. There's a long history of fellows who are great players that are so impatient with bad players that they can't, you know, they they can't sympathize with what they're going through. And so it's the reason it's the reason uh, Michael Jordan would never be a good coach, or or you know, like because. And I remember when I first started coaching, I remember a man named Tony Baroni who died a year and a half ago. So he said to me, he said to me, now Russ, you've got to remember not everybody's going to work as hard and be as dedicated as you are with the dribbling drills. And I thought, Oh, of course they will. I'll make them be as dedicated, you know, but that, of course, you know, no, 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 very few players were going to practice their dribbling as much as I did. But I, I do think that when you're as talented as say a Michael Jordan is that, that you, that you think everyone is should learn quickly. What's wrong with these dummies. And that can really work. So I think there's, it's happened over and over again that, you know, good good players don't make good coaches. It's sort of the the secondary ones, the secondary ones who do. For example, Don Haskins. You know, he wound up becoming ineligible as a player when he was a player. He was played for the uh, famous old coach named Henry Iba, that was the American Olympic coach. But Haskins was ineligible at one point. Wound up in and out of the games and on the bench. But I think that those guys that struggle a little bit wind up being able to sort of relate to the players' struggle. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And the the dribbling. Just back to the dribbling again, because you you referenced it a couple of times now. Where where did the like? I, I know you make the point that you weren't going dunking and you weren't the greatest shooter, and that dribbling was your was your was your uh, maybe your key to being recognised as a player. But, but where where did that motivation come from? Because as as, as coaches, like we we want we want to fill people with that kind of motivation. To, to if you're a young kid or you're a teenager or even an adult, that you can get out and you can go practice your skills, whatever, whatever sport it is that you that you that we're giving them that kind of not that we're giving it because you can't give somebody kind of intrinsic motivation, but that they, they they have that intrinsic motivation like you had to go and practice your your dribbling so many hours a day. Where did that come? from with you well yeah I, I mentioned that i didn't make my high school team and i should have said i never made my high school varsity you know the 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 old the good team the older team but when i was a sophomore i made the the in chicago they call it the frosh soft and it's it's a really important example i think to, to for me to remember is we you know the, the 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 older guys the varsity team was down there doing their dribbling drills and the frosh soft coach a man named harvey browse who i'm still in touch with he pointed down to this little red-haired kid that was on the varsity. He was the best dribbler. He had, you know, he had a, an afro. He had a red afro. You know, a red, a, a red he, was, he was a little Jewish kid with a red afro. <laughs> but he was a good dribbler. And he pointed down at this kid named David Chalmers, who I've never again seen since since high school, and said, "You could be, a, you could become a great dribbler like he did if you just practice these drills." What? It was, it was the, he only said two things to me the entire year. I was such a bad player, but that one really stuck with me. And I think we have to be careful as coaches not to, you know, that like, we don't remember everything we say to kids, but those kids remember everything that's said to them because, you, you know, that because it, it, you know, because we, because of so few things that you have to, that you're able to say to each player. And so it really does stick with kids. I think if you say, you know, that you're not worth a darn or you should quit or you're Sometimes we think that can motivate kids, but and I suppose sometimes it could. But at that time, I think I was fourteen. 
Right. And it really, really stuck with me. And so what, uh, particularly what we say to children can really, really stick with them. And I've done it myself, Michal, where I've been said something I regretted. And I would always try to go back to the guy later, either call him that night or go to his home, uh, you know, and, and say, listen, I was, I, th I think it actually shows strength. I don't want to talk about politics, but one of the things I admired about Obama was he's the first president I ever remember to say, I made a mistake. You yeah. know, like certainly, you, you, certainly not you, your last one. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't catch the current guy doing that. But I think I think that that great leaders are able to do that. I think it actually strengthens their position. You don't want to name too many of your mistakes. Yeah, and we would, we wouldn't have time to name all of mine. But 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 I think it. it but, but I think it actually so shows strength that I made a mistake, and I've done it with my own daughter to say, listen, I when you know, I'm sorry I yelled at you yesterday or that kind of thing. Yeah, Listen, parenting is the greatest coaching experience you're ever you're ever going to find from from my perspective. Anyway, would you would you believe when I'm parenting, I think about Don Haskins and, and Lou Henson all the time. Really? About, about you know, Lou Lou was unflappable in his. You know, Lou Henson used to say, you know, and he always said it with a smile too. So I'll try and imitate him. He said, "Now, Russ, ninety percent of the problems in the world are caused by the tone of voice people use." And, <laughs> and I think he's right about that. Is you know, you've got to, you've got to, you know, how as a writer, I know that now is you know the words you choose, you know, or as as a speaker, your tone is very important. As a writer, you know, words have real consequences. And if you call a player a dumbass or stupid, you know, it, it's very different than saying you're not thinking the way you, you, you know, the way you can or that kind of thing. But it, isn't it? It's amazing, and it's a point well made that that something that a coach said to you, like how long ago is that? You're 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 gone from high school a long time, and it's well, still it still resonates with you today. That 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 thing shaped maybe your basketball skills in terms of the dribbling, and and you're still recalling that story even even now. It really stuck with me. It was 1973, you know, and I still, I still remember it. I still remember it. I, I, I should wonder. I wonder. Dave Chalmers wouldn't remember me, but I certainly, I certainly remember him. But also, Michal, I do think some of it. I don't want to say it's genetic, but if you've got to, you know, like if you have to coach effort, I think one thing as a, co a coach we never want to do is, and I would tell players this is, we don't want to coach effort, and we don't want to coach unselfishness. Like mm -hmm. if you've got a player who tries hard who gives it a great effort and he's unselfish. There's no point in yelling at that guy, mm. you know, that you might as well just win. And, and it was also something I, you know, you might not, you might not remember this, but when, my second year in Trilly, we had Brandon Mason, who was very volatile. He played for Lou Henson and he was, you almost didn't need a scoreboard with Brandon Mason. You could just look at his, his face and say, okay, we're losing or okay, we're winning. Well, at, at our first practice game, I yelled at him and said, Brandon, you know, Damn it, that's your guy that went back door and he yelled right back at me. And I thought, and, and he'd played for Lou Henson and Lou had convinced me to take him. And I knew him a little bit beforehand. It was no, didn't take much convincing. But I, I left that day and thought, damn it, I'm going to have to send Brandon Mason home. I can't have the American player yelling at me. And then I thought, well, what am I going to tell Lou Henson that he, he only, it was only a practice game. I can't, couldn't call Lou Henson and say, look, we didn't even make it to the first game. I'm sending this guy home. But he, you know, he had yelled pretty loudly on the whole team that saw it. But then I just thought, let me try something different, which I, you know, most coaches are stubborn and they won't do that. And I didn't always do that either. But the next you know, practice, I went up to, I went to next time Brandon screwed up at the practice. I went to him and I whispered, I said, Brandon, that's, you're supposed to help on that. And you know what he did, Michal, is no one else heard it, but he whispered right back to me. And I thought, oh, aha. And I, and I think one of the things that as coaches and as a teacher, I'm a teacher now, is 
you want everyone to think they're being treated equally, but mm. you can't treat everybody equal. Mm. And so I know that, like, I remember when Mark Bernson took over in Tralee, and you, I think you responded well to him, and so did so did Kieran Downey, and so did John Tian. But some players, you know, he 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 was much louder and he would roar at guys much more than I. He's and a better coach. I mean, I'm not being falsely modest. He was a better coach than I was. But not everybody, not everybody was going to respond to that. And I think for me, I, I just with Brandon Mason, it really taught me a lesson. Like, you know, I got great results from whispering to him. So all year we were whispering back and forth to each other. You know, some players don't do well with being sort of the, the American black players are called being fronted off by the coach, you know, like sort of being belittled by the coach. Some play, some players need that. You know, like I think Tian wanted that, John Tian. Yeah. I think I think he wanted abuse and that he was gonna you would abuse him and then he was gonna go out and fight and show you how tough he was, you know, that he actually did well under that. And Donna, you know, I think like with you and Kieran Donahue, it wouldn't matter. You could have a frog coaching you guys, you know, or it, you know, whether it was the bomber or Claudio O'Shea, you know, or Pat Price, you guys were gonna respond to whatever coach, but not every player is like that. And I do think it's important as a coach, you, you can't just coach your star. You've got to coach, you've got to coach the bad players, and, and the players need to think they're being treated equally, but of course we're not treating everybody equally. Yeah, that's that's really interesting about about the communication with 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 Brendan and like a, there's a big thing now I suppose as well is just that coaches are aware that you know we're coaching people and and not players that that distinction is that you know if you if you shout at Brandon Mason for example and and he's not you know he doesn't react well to it or whatever another another form of communication or a quiet word to this guy where he doesn't feel like he's being challenged or demeaned or undermined and now you're getting results and you start to get the best out of them and it's probably that idea of of getting to know people and 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 the fact that you're relating to a person and not just a, a player who can deliver uh, whatever it is on a basketball court or football pitch or rugby or whatever it might be, you know? I, th I think that's an important concept, but I think in some ways, the, which is in some ways maybe a more modern concept, I don't know. Uh, was it with, with, was it Jack O'Connor that was the, was that his, the man's name from Car Savine that uh, he, did, he didn't seem like a yell and scream type like Paddy O'Shea would have been. But, but where I think it's, where I think we've gone off the rails, Michal, I will confess, I don't want to make anybody mad on the Kerry, on the Kerry uh, panel. <laughs> But I, but here it is. I think, it, particularly in basketball and particularly in pro basketball, is we've gone a little statistical crazy, where there's all this computer analysis. And I think the the the, the imp hugely important thing that that um, seems to ignore is there's a human element to sports that will, and that will never change. Is there's human beings involved, and because there's human beings involved, it can become very volatile. It's it's why the NBA continues to this day, and it'll never change. I'm not faulting anyone, but but they draft the wrong fellow. They've done all this homework and they've looked at all the statistics, but for whatever for you know chemistry reasons or personality reasons, a fella doesn't work out. And so that that but the human element will never change. Like yeah, Kieran Donahue, he's a great player, but how is he going to react to, you know, to, to Brandon Mason? Well, that's, there's an unpredictable element to the, hu and the human element to it that, that yes, psychology can get it, but statistics cannot get at. And so I know like with John Tian, I think it was immeasurable with, with John Tian, like he might only have, he might have one basket for the whole game, 
and then he'd make three baskets in the last two minutes and we would win. And now you could look at the statistics and say, geez, he only had eight points. We need to get him out of there. But, you know, the, the, some again, some of it is immeasurable. Yeah, and it's a big jump to go from from John T and, and Kieran Donny to Tim Hardaway. But was it El Paso or, or it was yeah. no? Yeah, that, that was yeah, Dutep. Sorry, yeah. It's just El Paso. Yeah. And that was your that was that was probably the biggest fish you caught in your in your in your recruiting days, was it? Michal, I, I would I wish I could uh, tell stories about what a genius I was, but I saw him once at a playground, and the next day at, we called a YMCA, sort of the community center, and you know I was I was 23 years old and he was 18. And, uh, and at that time I was still, even though, as, as I've said, I wasn't a good player, but the second day I went and played with him, I went right. and you know, played out on, on the court with him. And there was a real element of luck involved, but also we, you know, we talked about the unpredictability, like he wasn't rated very highly and that made him really angry. He had a chip on his shoulder, not about race or, or, or class or anything like that, but he had a chip on his shoulder. These other fellas had gotten more attention than him and he was convinced he was better. So when Hardaway came out of high school in Chicago, there was four or five point guards that were ranked well above him in all these scouting services. And for good reason, they probably were better, but he was determined to prove that he was better. And I think it that was an important lesson for me to think, to think you actually don't want the highest rated fella because he's going to think he's got nothing to prove. And, and I've, I've done that before where you want kids from winning teams on your team. But I think, I do think there's an element that it, let's say if, if a GAA player has won the 17 and under championship that he thinks I'm done. I don't have to do anything. Else. And also, but to get back to the Tim Hardaway thing, I, I, I think how, you know, I, I tell parents this all the time is, it shouldn't matter to you. You don't want your son to be the best 11 year old or the best 13 year old or the best. You want him to be, if he's in basketball, if he's the best 21 year old, it means uh, uh, money. And if he's the best 19 year old, it means a basketball scholarship. Being the best 11 year old is useless. Mm. And in fact, you don't, don't you remember this from high school, Michal? It, it is, uh, you know, the prettiest girls four years later, they weren't the prettiest girls, right? Yeah. Or the fellow, you know, the fellow, I remember when I went to uh, grades, you know, you know, in primary school, there was a fellow named Duck. We called him Duck. He was the best in football, basketball, and baseball. But by the time we got to be 18, he wasn't the best at all anymore. Mm. And I, I, I do think there's an element of for parents where they're so concerned about their kid being the best 11 year old, but you actually don't want them to be the best 11 year old. It just works. It just for human psychology. You want you want kids that, you know, as a coach, I want kids on the team that are hungry and feel like they have something to prove. Yeah, that's an that's an important point. And in every in every sport and GA, every every game. This this obsession with you're know, under tens or you're under elevens and twelves and thirteens that we got to win this game we have to win this league we have to win this championship when in all reality the, the the point you make is 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 completely accurate that realistically a lot of those kids might not even be playing by the time they get to twenty one or twenty two because of maybe the pressures that that were you know that they that they might have felt from parents or coaches or whatever to try and win those games maybe it's not something that's for them but. Like it's amazing that the, the kids that do come true at 18, 19, 20 years of age who may not have been your, your star guys at 11, 12 and 13 years of age if they're kept playing and if they're, if they're used and the point you make about maybe guys who are lower on your roster, if they're made to feel that they're a part of the whole thing as opposed to just being kind of extra shunned out the back, you know? But also I think it's important to communicate to your team that, you know, sometimes, you know, motivation, 
positive motivation is great, but at times there can be negative motivation. I remember there's a famous story in American boxing where they asked Rocky Grazia, or they asked uh, Rocky Grazia, let's see, no, they asked Tony Zale. He would have these famous fights with Rocky Graziano back in the 1940s or 50s. And they asked Zale, did you hate, hate, they were wars where they were just brutal fights. And they asked Tony Zale, did you, did you hate Rocky Graziano? And do you still hate Rocky Graziano? He said, hate him. I love him. He drove me to greatness. And I would argue, I don't remember what year it was, maybe 2015 or whatever, but the MVP for Kerry uh, K- K- when they won the All-Ireland that year should have been Joe Brawley. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. like, like, like sometimes, you know, you can think I'm mad at Joe Brawley, but Joe Brawley drove Kieran Donahue to greatness. He should, you know, and I think they're friendly now. By the way, when I lived in Belfast for a year, I, I met someone said, oh, Joe Brawley's over at this fellow's house. So I went over with my book, you know, and I, <laughs> I signed my name on the on the page that had Kieran Donahue's photo. And he took it well. He said, I misspelled Brawley. I, I can't remember, but I spelled his name wrong. But, <laughs> but, but that, that idea, like, I think that happens. And I think it's something for the athletes to remember is you may think that that was a terrible thing that happened to you. Like, I think, like, I just not to keep talking about Kieran Donahue, but, you know, I know he had a troubled relationship with his father, but that drove him to greatness. You know, and one of the things it did for Donahue was, I think, as a young man, he was craving approval from an older man, and he wasn't going to get it from his father because he wasn't around. And so he wanted, he had to get it from Jack O'Connor or Paddy O'Shea or from, or from me or, you know, Mark Bernson is that he was craving. And so I, I do think there's an element of, uh, I know it happens to me as a writer all the time where I, I grumble and think these bastards, they, they rejected my book. And, you know, and, and it, I think it's always a crossroads for us as players and coaches is what am I going to do? Am I just going to, there's time, of course, there's time to quit. Like I'm never going to be an NBA player. I might as well quit my dribbling. But, you know, I think there's this crossroads we come to as coaches and athletes where we have a real reckoning, you know, where you, you, like it happened to me in Tralee, right? I couldn't sleep at night and I would have rather had a, a night where I did sleep, but it, it forced me to sort of deal with some of, you know, so I, I do think it's, it's, it's out of crisis and it, it happens in art and music too, where it's, it's crisis, you know, like it was sad and hard times that made the American blues music be what it is. And it's crisis, you know, like I think you, you know, you as a football player or Donahue as a football player have some dark times. Like what am I doing on the bench and what am I going to do here? Absolutely, yeah, and everyone, everyone has those times. But it's, I suppose, the the way the way you react to those are the, are, are the way that, that shapes your whether you're a player or a coach or whatever. But it's 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 interesting to hear you talk though about about the the underage stuff. I think that's a really important point about you don't have to be the best eleven year old. You don't you don't want your kid necessarily to be the best eleven year old. We want kids playing the game as long as we possibly can, whatever game that is. And the longer you're playing, and you know, the better chance you have of, of sticking at it and getting better at it. You know, and um, it's and it's it's not just the possibility of who's going to grow and develop. It's if a if a kid th- if a kid has too much success at thirteen, he thinks it's going to be easy. Mm. You know, so you don't you don't want uh, you, you don't you don't want you. I think in, in some ways we I should, if if I, I I always tell parents is until they're about eighteen years old, the only thing you should say to them after the game is, "Did you have fun?" Mm. Yeah, you know, it has to be fun, or they or or they or they burn out. I think. Yeah, and, and very- so I know I know like with 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 you with basketball, it, 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 I don't think you ever burned out, and I think Donahue with Gaelic mm-hmm. football, I don't think he ever burned out because his, his success didn't happen until later. 
the fiddle, the fiddle for people maybe who who wouldn't be, and I'll I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit maybe before I, I set this off. But when you first came over, you you started with the fiddle to 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 learn how to play. I can remember bringing you down and dropping you outside Betty's and and different places, and you'd go in and you'd sit down and you you'd start to play the fiddle. Uh, which, which at the time we were all thinking this, you know, it's pretty unusual. It's, 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 it's a, it's a strange kind of a thing for for an American guy to come over who's coaching basketball. Are we doing? But now, uh, right now, I, I started thinking about it and, and how interesting it is and, and how it's something like that can actually impact on, on a person's coaching as well. Like there's a, there's a, there was a football, or sorry, there was a hurling, a hurling man over here who, as an adult, who had never played golf before, uh, to deliberately improve his coaching to gain a bit of empathy for the children and the youths that he was coaching to go playing golf um and it's a kind of a similar thing to to you taking up the fiddle he started playing golf and felt like a like a six-year-old child trying to make a layup or, or run and jump and catch a football or hit a slitter that it was totally new and 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 something to really completely try to learn from scratch like how, how did you how did it playing the fiddle even though it probably wasn't the purpose of it but how how did it you know have an impact on on your coaching well i, I think it's important to be a beginner at something and so mm. even though I, I played a little i played some american old-time music i was completely a beginner and i'd sit there with my fiddle on my knee waiting for you know waiting for an hour to hear a tune that i, I knew but i i do think there's there were i know there were some similarities like in basketball you go practice by yourself then you go to the group and see oh geez i can't make a left-handed layup or whatever it is well the same thing happens in music where you practice by yourself and then on sundays you go to betty's or or Bailey's Corner or, or Kate Brown's in Hartford and, and you see, okay, oh, here's what I'm good at, but here's what I'm not good at. And you go back and practice by yourself. But I think by having a, you know, I'm not a, a Buddhist or a Zen guy, but there's this Zen Buddhist idea, they call it beginner's mind, where by being a beginner, it, you know, you, you, you and, and by learning, it really helped me to think, okay, I'm learning this, the Irish tradition and I'm trying to teach the the American tradition. I think there's an element to that. And I do think there's there's a few, there's not many, but there are a few, like Danny Fulton, I guess, the Belfast coach was a, was a very good piano player. And have you met uh, in Dublin, there's the uh, hurling uh, man named Mick O'Brien. Have you met Mick O'Brien? He'd be about my age, but he is maybe the best Illin Piper in the world. Really? But, and he, he's the only music person that ever came to one of our uh, one of my basketball games, and he lived in Dublin. But uh, he's at, his daughter is actually his daughter and his son are actually my daughter's teacher now on on the on the Skype. But but okay. but but that idea is I, I do I do think there's an element of uh, I, I think it works works both ways. Is if you're learning something on your own, that's you know that can help you teach something else. And there's also the idea that if you become an expert in one thing, it helps you to understand. There's also a sort of a Chinese, ancient Chinese idea that it's, I know it seems like I'm a Kung Fu master or something here. I, I don't know anything about Chinese culture, but there is a Chinese expression that if you know one thing, you know the world. And so by becoming, say, a master guitar player, it helps you understand things in, you know, in, a, in a greater sense. It's the reason we turn to books, is it sort of opens up our head to possibilities in the world. So I, I do think it's a hard and it's a hard thing to do like if you go and take you know karate lessons or piano lessons and you seem clumsy and clunky mm. but, but it helps you to understand I, I remember saying this to don haskins is that i remember being impatient with a kid once and complaining to him i said aren't these guys ever going to learn 
Mm-hmm. And he said, he stopped me and said, now, wait a minute, Russ. Now, how old are you now? You're, at that time, I was 30 or 31. He said, you know, you're 30 years old, but the players are always going to be 19. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that happens to all of us as coaches is we lose patience. Like, I'm tired of saying the same things over and over again, but the players aren't hearing the same things over and over again. They're yeah. new to it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I do think there's an element of, uh, you know, that that you have to sort of rem- remember that the players are are, are new to it. And that, yeah, they, the, and it's important as coaches to remember, no, the players are never going to learn. You're going to have to keep teaching over and over again. And I'll, it happens to me in my writing classes now, like I think kind of sick of saying the same things over and over again, but there's a value, you know, you have to do it. That's all, that's yeah. all we can do. Yeah, I love I love that idea. Yeah, that it, it's important to be a beginner at something. It's it's probably a really good it's probably a really good mantra for coaches actually to, to, to just whatever it is. What what it doesn't necessarily have to be a sport or, or or anything. Just it's important to be a beginner. I think it probably keeps you grounded as a coach and it keeps that mindset that you know it, it gives you an idea of what players are going through a lot of the time if they're trying to pick stuff up, which is which is important. Uh, I, I, maybe for, maybe for you, Michal, it's time to go back and really get proficient in, in your Irish. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Or the, or, the, or the ballet, whatever. Yeah, I think the Irish have a better chance than the ballet, yeah. Listen, la- last last couple of things, and, I, and I'll, I'll let you get back to celebrating Joe Biden. The If there was something, Russ, if there was something uh, coaching-wise that you have learned in the last 20 or 30 years that you wish you had known when you were starting out, what what kind of growth or improvement or 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 lesson have you learned in the last couple of years, 20, 30 years that you've been coaching that you'd love to have known when you were starting? Well, I, I think, I think I've, I've more or less tried to do this, but I think with Lou Henson, you know, his thing was, you know, he treated everybody with dignity and, and treated every, like, I don't know if you remember Buddy O'Grady from the Mount Hawk. Mm-hmm. He wasn't, he wasn't the caretaker to me. He was, he was just as important as, he was just as important as John T and or you. And I think just, if you'll treat, I think, you know, just treating everyone with decency and, and, and dignity. And that, that I think because especially the sports world is a small world. And if you make, you're going to make enemies accidentally. And Don Haskins was very much like this too, as was Lou Henson is, you know, you're going to, you know, there's no point in going around making enemies and it's a small world you know, and that, that if you treat people decently and with respect, it's going to come back. And, and in the end, you're going to be, be happier anyway. I never, I never met, I never met Paudy O'Shea, but, but you know, that I, I think that there's, uh, I think that you, you start rubbing people the wrong way or, or that kind of thing. And it, I mean, I think it's come back to haunt our, our, our president. Well, he's no longer our president as of today, I suppose, but you, you can't go around calling people names. And, and I, Pat Price and I used to talk about this all the time is, you know, we have to build up the game itself and not just build up our team and build up that, that it was important to, to basketball was having basketball uh, get better and improve was more important than the truly tigers improving or me having a winning record. And I think that, you know, I think that, I think that in the end, like, I think in the end, I'm, I can't wait to see Super Dave Cronin and Kevin O'Donoghue again. Like I wanted to treat, treat everyone with respect and it'll, it'll come back rather than coming back to haunt you. I think it'll, it'll, it'll pay off for you in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I'll give give you one piece of advice yourself though. I will say in, in America, I don't know if it's true in Ireland, no husband has ever been shot while doing the dishes. So I hope that you'll, I hope that you'll take the time today to do the dishes yourself and, and, and make things better around the house. Dishwashers, Russ, dishwashers. Um, 
Listen, just I, I just want to say thanks, Ross. We're gonna we're gonna leave it there, and and like it's been it's been uh, it's fantastic. It's great to catch up with you. I haven't seen you in a in a long time, so it's great to chat. And I think some of the stuff that we got there is uh, is really good. Just would you would you mind, Ross, just for people if um, if people like because you've got a couple of fantastic books and, and different things. I didn't even get to mention Sean Harrington, and 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 if you might just mention a couple of books, Ross, and where people might be able to get a little bit more information about you if they wanted to. Well, it's, let's see, if you, if you can spell my name, it's russbradbird.com. There's just one S in Russ, Russ Brad, uh, R-U-S-B-R-A-D-B-U-R-D. Russbradbird.com has information about my four books, and including the most recent one about gun violence in the world of basketball in Chicago. We've got a terrible gun violence problem in America. And I, and you could, but I suppose Patty on the hardwood and all the books would be available. Do we get Amazon? We get Amazon in Ireland, do we? <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. We yeah. get Amazon. And, yeah. And so I don't know if, if, uh, if O'Mahony's or, or, uh, um, what are the other, what are the other retailers for, for books? Eason's, all of them. We, we have them all. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll find what's, them. What's the, what's the name of the, of the, of the little one that's just around the corner from Jess McCarthy's pub in Tralee with the, uh, is it Polymath? Yeah, Polymath. I don't know if Polymath would carry my books or not, but I would always encourage people to use their local bookstore rather than, you know, I, I buy from Amazon occasionally, but I always try to do it. Uh, I, that's always my last resort. Yeah. Okay. Um, what about Sean Harrington? No, you, you okay with Sean? You don't, do you want to, do you want to mention that? Well, yeah, he was, he was, we're coming up on the seven year anniversary of his shooting and we finally got him. So I wrote a book about him called All the Dreams We've Dreamed, a story of hoops and handguns on Chicago's West Side. I'd coached him briefly at New Mexico State and was out of touch with him, but he was driving his daughter to school at seven in the morning. This was again, seven years ago. And uh, some, he was in a rental car, you know, so it wasn't his usual car. And so these fellas, in a mistaken identity, they they ran up and opened fire on them. These two young guys. It was seven thirty in the morning, which I thought, well, none of us are safe if they're shooting at seven thirty in the morning. Turns out, you know, it's heroin sales. That if you're if you're buying beer or marijuana, you don't care what time it is. But if it's heroin, you need your. I guess you need your your hit of heroin early. In the, so they they ran up. They had the wrong car, and when the bullets started flying, he dove on top of his daughter and pushed her down a bullet went through her headrest. So he saved her life. She would have got hit in the, in the face or the head, but he took a bullet in the spine and he'll never walk again. And that's, so that all happens in the first chapter of the book, but the book is about that incident, but mostly about his struggles afterwards and, and about many of his players wound up getting killed after he was shot. And so it's, it's a, it's a real, it's a huge problem in America and it's not a simple solution. I don't know what the solution is. And the book is not about the solutions or policy, but just about the, about the people involved. And uh, so all, all of my books are available, but uh, online, but Sean Harrington, who spells his first name, not the Irish way, but S H A W N, and I suppose Harrington could be an Irish. The surname could be an Irish name too, I suppose. Yeah, one of our most famous golfers, Patrick. Well, that's right. I don't, I'd say they're not related, but Sean is African American, of course. But but uh, it's quite a story of courage and, and and perseverance. And it also made it, you know, writing about Sean and and 
you know, sort of documenting his life made me appreciate Terry O'Brien, you know, our old, our Lord Mayor mm -hmm. in, in, El, in uh, Tralee, who's has been confined to a wheelchair and just the struggles and, and guts that it would take to go on every day and, and the prejudices you face and that kind of thing. So it really, I haven't seen Terry O'Brien in a few years, but, and I always admired him, but now it's given me an understanding of what he faces. Yeah. And, and he's doing good. I've, I've spoke to him recently, actually. Yeah, he's in great form, even with, with COVID and everything. Um, so listen, we're going we're gonna to leave it there, Russ. I want to I thank you sincerely, man. I, I really appreciate it. And I think, I think people will, um, will, will enjoy that and get something from it. And, um, and again, just before we go, guys, there's, there's, there is going to be a link below, uh, again, and every, everything that if you, if you have something, if you've got a couple of cents or a euro and you, you feel like donating something, it's going all directly to um, Temple Street Children's Hospital in Dublin and uh, especially now during COVID fundraising, everything else has been severely hampered. So if, if, uh, if there is something that you, you can donate, then obviously it would be most appreciated by, by them and by everybody. So uh, thanks again to Russ and talk soon.